So let me introduce Carrie. Uh, I actually, Carrie, you and I met so long ago when you were writing for Reuters. And uh, you were the best of, the, of all of the writers, the, the mainstream writers, who were talking the truth about Monsanto and they didn't like it and they tried to intimidate you and you told me all about it and I was excited to get someone on the inside to know how Monsanto was treating a real reporter, an investigative reporter. And you, um, you've written two books, Whitewash and the Monsanto Papers, and you're also a, contributor, a regular contributor to The Guardian. And what we're going to talk about is basically a lot of people are going to have questions. So we're going to talk about a lot of different things. But what I want to do is I want to start, I want to start by asking you about the book. And I, a lot of people have submitted their questions in advance. So I'm using a lot of those questions that people asked to, to um, lead us through. But first, welcome, Carrie, and thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it. So I'm going to say that your book was described as a powerful story well told and a remarkable work of investigative journalism. It was described as a compelling book from beginning to end about one of the most important legal battles of our time. So I would like to ask you, before you summarize, Albert says, what is the motivation to write the Monsanto papers? At Twyla 179 says, read your book and want to know what inspired you to get into this work. And then another person said, what's the difference between whitewash and the Monsanto papers? So this is the <laughs> background leading into the summary of the book, why you wrote it and um, and all that. And okay. Started. All right. Great. Um, gosh. So the long answer, I'll give you the long answer, right? Yeah, sure. So um, whitewash, right. I wrote that in 2017, left um, Reuters and my, the, person who turned out to be my editor and my publisher, Island Press, came to me and said, would you write a book about all of these things that you've written about at Reuters for 20 years, uh, this chemical called glyphosate and the impacts on the environment, how it relates to genetically engineered crops, Monsanto, regulation, politics, you know, human health, etc. And so I piled all that into the first book, Whitewash. And it got great reviews, won a few awards, um, got me invited to speak all around the world um, and, and to different universities. But a lot of people also said, it's a really hard book to read. You know, I mean, it's, it's really heavy. It's heavy on the science, it's heavy on data. Um, it's it's an almost an academic read. Um, although I, I didn't try to make it that way. Um, then as the lawsuits, you know, the roundup litigation was unfolding and I was really staying close to that. And a lot of the lawyers actually involved in that litigation were reading whitewash uh, and were trying to get up to speed. Um, I found out about the history of Monsanto and glyphosate. So I was following these cases and I got to know this, this plaintiff, the guy who became the very first person to take Monsanto to court. And this was Lee Johnson. Uh, and you're, everybody out there might be familiar with that. That was the first trial. It was held in 2018. Lee Johnson was a school groundskeeper, a really just compelling character, really humble guy, father, two little kids, told by the doctors, you know, he's only got 18 months really to live. Um, so he got an exp expedited trial, a trial preference granted to him. And 
you know, as I watched his case and I got to know him, I, and there were so many really just crazy twists and turns leading up to the trial and, you know, a lawyer almost died. I mean, we can get into all of this later, but um, I thought this, this is a crazy story. This has got to be a movie. I can't make a movie, but I can write a book. So I'm going to write a book and I'm going to write it in a really personal way, a really human interest, compelling, trying to write it almost like a John Grisham novel, you know, um, but it's all true. It's all got to be true. And so, so everything is true. It's a nonfiction book, but I did try to style it to appeal to a more general audience, you know, a thriller, like follow it along and, and, and understand what this guy, this, this poor guy who's suffering from this terminal disease, like what he's going through you know, what it's like to have cancer and be a father and, and be told you're not going to be there for your kids and suffer through chemotherapy. And, you know, so so I've tried to pack a lot of that into this book. It's a long answer. <laughs> no, it was good. I want to show that he, um, he had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And yeah. it, it, I want to give a demonstration or a visual of what that looks. If you don't like this, you can turn away from the screen. We're going to show his skin. Okay. So we're going to do that in just a moment. There we go. Pretty serious stuff. And and we got to say, that's a really mild um, picture <laughs> of... Yeah um to to see him to be in his presence to look at him this is from head to toe scars on his face his head um, his feet uh every part of his body uh skin you know flakes and and the these lesions on his body ooze and bleed and are painful and it's excruciating for him to try to you know put on socks and shoes uh, many instances, many days. Uh, he really has some been someone who's really suffered quite a great deal with this cancer. So, can you summarize the books and point the book and point out some of the more dramatic stories? I happen to be aware. <laughs> I have the book right here. It's fantastic. Um, I happen to be aware of some of these even before I, I looked at your book, and it is a it is a very dramatic. Um, such event. I mean, there's a lot of small pieces. So can you summarize and highlight some of the drama? Yeah, yeah, I'll try to do it. I mean, so there's different, there's different narrative threads. So you follow Lee, right? You follow Lee's journey and be, when he's healthy. And then as he gets, he has an accident at work and it's a dramatic accident, you know, and then, and then how he develops his cancerous lesions and going to the doctor and being told he's going to die. So you follow that narrative. But then you also separately have woven in the narratives of this team of lawyers, these four or five different lead lawyers who start out uh, not really having worked together, really uh, never having taken on a chemical company like Monsanto, a pesticide company, um, not really knowing what glyphosate is. Uh, and, you know, you've got an old kind of an old dog, Southern gentleman, Virginia lawyer, um, who's sort of on the edge of retirement. And then you've got this young, wet behind the ears, still kind of hotshot Los Angeles guy. And you've got uh, the good old soul of the earth, you know, woman, uh, young female attorney in Denver, and how they come together and how they strategize and how they disagree, but how they, you know, really end up digging up the, the deep, dark secrets um, from within Monsanto, these Monsanto papers, uh, and then how one of them really crafts a plan, uh, you know, to lure Monsanto really into sort of a legal trap. 
um, so that he can release these documents to the world, these secret Monsanto papers. And, you know, it, it was dramatic. The, the, the big release took place just after midnight um, on August 1st of, uh, you know, a year before the trial, the first trial. And, you know, so I, I get into all of that and how that happened and how the judge came back down on him. And, oh, and then there's, you yeah. know, and then, Brent told me about this and we were in the green room outside waiting to go on the doctor's TV show. And he told me about the drama of that, which is when I originally found out about it. And he was scared that after he released the Monsanto papers, he was going to be disbarred. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, I mean, there was the judge was really, really angry. And Monsanto's lawyers were, I mean, just, you know, so over, <laughs> just really enraged. Um, but when it came down to it, you know, if you looked at the judge's protective order, he, this young lawyer, Brent Wisner, had been very, very careful to follow every single step to the, to the letter that the judge had laid out. Um, Monsanto's lawyers were not paying enough attention, it appears. Um, and, and, but you'll have to follow that in the story. And, but then there's, you know, other things. I mean, the lawyer right before Lee's trial, the guy who was supposed to be the lead lawyer in that and give the opening statement and everything, uh, you know, is, is cut down in this just terrible, bizarre accident, you know, just, just a couple of weeks before the trial and nearly dies. And then another lawyer in the firm who's going to work on the trial suffers this, you know, this, I don't want to give it away of it. Um, you know, so he's basically not able to participate. Um, just really crazy stuff that went on. And, and it makes for a really good story. <laughs> so you mentioned, I mean, uh, people know who've been following us know about Brent Wisner. We, I interviewed him for several hours and put it on the our site. And we've had oh. live Facebooks <laughs> and all. He and I were on uh, the national show, The Doctors, for an entire okay. episode. And he is a very aggressive character. And he is magnificent as a trial attorney. And there was no way that he was gonna be leading this Lee Johnson trial because it wasn't even, Lee wasn't his client. So he was just gonna be supportive of it and whatnot. And so one guy gets taken out. He's still not gonna be the person. Another guy gets taken out. Right. And it's like, why is this happening? Yeah. Well, read the book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Find out it happened, and it was an amazing setup for this incredible firebrand attorney to get a chance to get a podium. He's not very old, but he was like he was fearless. He's he was right. Fearless. And what you what you learn about in the book is that he grew up sort of in this actor, you know, artist community, um, and he was a child actor, and so he really was adept at sort of, you know, how to modulate his voice and use his body and as having a stage presence and really connecting with people. And, uh, you know, he, he also has a lot of hubris, you know, a lot of self-confidence and he um, wanted to take, you know, his arguments further than maybe some of the other lawyers wanted him to. And they were really nervous about his, how he handled some aspects of the case and the trial. Um, but, you know, it, it worked out for them. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you know, the yeah. ending, it worked out. Yeah. So um, I have some questions from people. Um, 
First of all, how much money has Monsanto paid out a result as a result of legal actions? Has Lee Johnson made any money yet? Uh, so Bayer, which bought Monsanto right on the eve of Lee Johnson's trial, right in 2018, right? Talk about a, a bad time to, to buy <laughs> the company. Uh, they said last year they were going to put out about $11 billion in settlement uh, money towards settling all of the litigation. There's about 100,000 cases around the United States. Uh, people with non-Hodgkin lymphoma who filed and they all allege essentially the same thing that their disease is due to their exposure to Roundup or other glyphosate herbicides sold by Monsanto. And importantly, that Monsanto knew about the science uh, connecting non-Hodgkin lymphoma to the glyphosate herbicides and, and hid that, actively worked to suppress that information, did not warn consumers and tried to hide the risks. So about 100,000 people, they've agreed to pay out about 11 billion. They just said, gosh, a month or so ago, they were gonna add another four, four and a half billion dollars to that pot. Um, but they have also said uh, that they're ceasing any settlement talks uh, while they wait to see if the U.S. Supreme Court will take up one of their appeals. Their, their, their big hope in putting all this litigation behind them is to get a U.S. Supreme Court ruling that will agree with them that federal law and EPA approval of their labels on their products preempts these many of these claims that they failed to warn or they hid the risk. They're saying, if the EPA says we're okay and says our label is, is good, then you shouldn't be able to claim that it's anything else. And they haven't gotten the appeals courts to agree with them, but they're hoping the US Supreme Court will. I'm gonna share with you with everyone the some of the comments by the judges uh, that you sent to me. Uh, and I want everyone to know that we're gonna be covering a large swath of information because people were really asking tons of questions. We had you know, over a hundred questions submitted. We've been through them over the last two days. Um, and you're also welcome to submit questions live in the chat. We have members of our, of our team that will take it and they'll text it to me on my phone and I'll be able to ask it. Um, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna start now and we have questions on you know, how to avoid glyphosate in food and which crops uh, have it and were you under, you know, did you fear for your life, Carrie? And all these other questions we're gonna get to. But I wanna share these, the pictures of, um, let me see here, get to the next one. This is from, why don't you introduce the three quotes? There's two on this page and one on the next. Go sure, on. sure, sure. So this is Judge Ben Shabria, US District Judge. He is uh, in charge of what is called the multi-district litigation. And this is, um, this is something that happens in mass tort litigation. You'll learn about this if you read the book, uh, when you have, you know, a large number of, of claims and lawsuits that are being filed all around the country and the judges determine, uh, there's a panel in Washington, DC, but they determine that for pretrial proceedings, discovery and other sorts of issues, it's better to just put them all together under one judge, but they're not all tried together. Um, but this judgment, Shabria, You'll, if you read him, you follow him in my book, I, I go into a lot of detail about him. He was really skeptical about this litigation at the beginning. You know, he really, you could tell he did not think that there, there was much um, evidence to stand on when he first started looking at this. In fact, he called the evidence shaky um, at one point when he was looking at the scientific evidence. By the time the trials were completed, 
you see what he says here, a fair amount of evidence. The only thing Monsanto cared about was undermining the people who were raising concerns about whether Roundup caused cancer. Monsanto didn't seem concerned at all about getting at the truth of whether glyphosate caused cancer. And then you have another judge here. This is Alameda County Superior Court judge. Um, and Monsanto made an ongoing effort to impede, discourage, or distort scientific integrity, uh, scientific inquiry, and the resulting science about glyphosate, and thereby showed a conscious disregard for public health. And these judges were commenting and looking at um, whether or not there was uh, punitive damage uh, rationale, um, a way for punitive damages forward. And then this one, yeah, if you can see it, this is very recent. This is from the appeals court that recently weighed in. Uh, again, Monsanto had appealed one of their trial losses and the appeals court, you know, these guys just ripped into uh, the company and you can see what they're saying. Substantial evidence supports the jury verdict. Monsanto's conduct evidence, reckless disregard for the health and safety of the multitude of unsuspecting consumers it kept in the dark. And you can read the rest of it, but um, so if they get a friendly Supreme Court, uh, it will certainly be quite uh, a different, a different tone than what you've seen so far from the judges who, who've been involved in this. Yeah, let's let's hope. You know, I mean, Clarence Thomas is on the Supreme Court. He used to work for Monsanto, and when there was a judgment that was going to be favorable to Monsanto's fortunes, he did the rare thing of writing the the uh, majority opinion. He normally never writes it, and he didn't recuse himself for having you know formerly worked for Monsanto. So. Let us hope that the, so we'll, we'll let everyone know what the Supreme Court says, and you may hear it, it may be uh, in all the news anyway. All right, so um, I've got some questions. Here's from Nazim in Bangladesh. What is the challenge of a journalist to dig out the real science and adverse effects on human and environment health, environmental health of technology innovation and to convey it to the general people of the world? Well, it's a big challenge. Thank you for asking that question. Um, you know, there, there was just a piece out today I was looking at from a, a journalist and a woman who's a doctor um, or works in medicine for many years. And she was writing about all that she's uncovered over the last several years about money and the influence that pharmaceutical companies have in medicine and medical conferences and um, the, the drugs, the medicines that doctors push for their patients. Um, it's a really difficult job to try to get through um, the multiple layers of propaganda and spin and front groups and um, collusion with regulatory officials and, you know, ghost written scientific literature. Um, it's, it's incredibly difficult. I mean, I think the, the best path forward is, is what, you know, I've done and a lot of my colleagues um, have really pioneered uh, FOIA information, getting documents from, from um, Freedom of Information Act requests through EPA, FDA, USDA, CDC, different state universities in the United States, um, and, then, and then through court documents, like what we've seen come out in the litigation with Monsanto. Um, discovery documents can really uh, tell you a lot. And unfortunately, um, you know, we've, we've had to rely on lawyers and the discovery documents that they bring to light in a lot of different industries uh, to really get to the truth. You don't see that uh, coming forward from regulators a lot. Um, so it's, it's really a difficult challenge. I don't know what it, you know, what the laws are in your country in terms of document um, availability and transparency. 
Um, but, you know, in any democratic society and any, you know, free um, country where citizenry is supposed to have a voice, right, in public policy, and we're supposed to know what our public officials and our regulators and our academics are doing uh, with our taxpayer dollars. So that's something we really push for is transparency. I sit on the Society of Environmental Journalists uh, Freedom of Information Task Force, and we're always trying to push, you know, push the agencies. We've been pushing EPA just recently um, to, to stop stonewalling and to provide interviews with scientists and to be more forthcoming and, and honest um, with, with us and with members of the public. Um, I don't know if this is the right time to get into it, but it would be worthwhile to mention the whistleblowers that recently have come out of the EPA. Oh, yeah, that's a great story. Thank you. You did some great reporting on that. Well, I didn't do anything, but Sharon Lerner did at the Intercept. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility is really the group that brought this forward. Um, and these are four scientists at our US EPA, and they have had enough, basically. And they came forward with their names attached and documents, emails, you know, and even an audio recording, and basically proving their, their allegations or showing uh, that EPA managers have made them, forced them to cover up when chemicals are, are tied to cancer or reproductive health problems or neurotoxicity, neurodevelopmental issues in people. Um, they're having their reports rewritten. They're having their science suppressed. And, you know, they're saying the public is in danger because of it. And it's all due to corporate pressure on regulatory management. Um, and like I said, they've brought forward emails. They've asked for a congressional investigation. Um, so, you know, that's big stuff. And that's just sort of blowing up right now. These relate to a couple of questions. One from Karen. I'm very interested in the tactics and narratives. How has Monsanto convinced a nation and farmers that they are good? And Ella from California, why do chemical and pharmaceutical companies get away with almost anything when no Senate, High Court, or Congress will call on them to answer for the harms done? Yeah, well, I mean, you need to read Whitewash, right? Because <laughs> that lays it all out. Um, There's so many different strategies that these companies employ, and it's not just Monsanto. I think Monsanto maybe perfected a lot of these tactics. Um, the tobacco industry, you've seen it in tobacco, oil and gas, pharmaceutical, um, you know, other aspects of the chemical industry. Um, again, I mean, they, the, the easy, obvious one is, you know, they donate to members of Congress. They pour a lot of money into lobbying in Washington, D.C. They influence, you know, farm and agricultural policy. Um, so, you know, what crops are grown and how that impacts, you know, what chemicals are are purchased and what they're selling and uh, what the laws and the regulations are around the chemicals that they're selling. But then they also are funding front groups, right? Organizations that look completely independent and look authoritative and sciencey. Um, and these front groups are carrying the water and going out and you know, proclaiming these chemicals are safe or, you know, these crops are safe or this issue is, is, is great and all you need to do is follow the science and they never disclose that they're being funded um, by the companies that they're trying to benefit. And, and both you and I have been targets of these front groups. 
since it's inappropriate for Monsanto to target, to target us directly, they pay the pseudoscientists and others to, to try and discredit us. Now, you mentioned about the influence of, of these organizations on government policy. Alana from Pennsylvania writes, uh, what role do federal agricultural subsidies play in creating the Monsanto monster? Yeah, well, and it, again, it, it's not just Monsanto in a vacuum. You know, these are this is a, a strategy, and there are a lot of very big, powerful companies um, that are involved. Crop Life is a very big, you know, known Crop Life America, Crop Life International, sort of the lobbying arm for the Bayer, Monsanto, you know, BASF, Dow, Dupont, Syngenta um, of the world. Um, but, you know, they are able, they have been able really, again, to influence and direct policies that support sort of monocropping, that support uh, row crops, corn and soybeans, for instance, which happen to be, you know, the genetically engineered crops that Monsanto brought into the world and licenses uh, the technology to other seed companies. And so they're really plugging a lot of support and encouragement into the types of crops uh, that use the types of chemicals that these companies are selling uh, and not as much into organic or sustainable or regenerative or all of these other agricultural sort of opportunities or avenues uh, that many people, many scientists, you know, say would be much more beneficial for human health and environmental health and for addressing climate change. Uh, if, you know, and there's, there's quite a call right now and, and a lot of people pushing for more government money to go into those programs. Um, and you are seeing, you are seeing that happen a little bit, um, but it, the, over the past several decades, it really has been dominated by sort of a industrial agriculture mindset. And that's where the money from Washington has been going to a large so degree. Lisa just wants to check in, is Lee alive? Is Lee Johnson alive? So why don't you answer his, his current status? So I don't know, um, like today, um, <laughs> I actually thought about texting him today, um, but I thought he's, you know, I've, I got to leave the guy alone. I mean, we've spent a lot of time together, talked on the phone and visited in person and texted. And, you know, as of like a month ago, when I last talked to him, he was alive. Um, and it was actually doing pretty well. He was, he has a new treatment that he had uh, been undergoing and was traveling a little bit with his family and trying to get in some trips with his boys and, um, you know, really, really doing a lot better. And he did get money from Monsanto or Bear last year. All the appeals were exhausted. And uh, his initial award, when you read in the book, he's awarded, it was awarded $289 million. But through the appeals process, that was cut to about 20 and a half, $20.5 million. And the, you know, one of the reasons that that was done is just seems so crazy. But because he was not expected to live very long, the, the provisions in California law did not allow him to collect a lot of money for ongoing pain and suffering, ongoing medical bills, all of that sort of thing, because he's supposed to die very quickly. So his award was cut um, pretty dramatically, but he did finally get, get some money. Yeah. Yeah, I spoke to his wife, I think, three weeks ago, so he was still holding Okay, good. Three weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, 
As a journalist asks, Joni, are you afraid of the consequences you'll face from going after Monsanto? How do you cope with the stress of taking such a giant on? And I might answer that same question. Go ahead. Oh, sure. I, well, I mean, I'm over it now. You know, I, I started covering Monsanto in 1998. Uh, I was, you know, working for Reuters and um, I didn't know anything about farming really or genetically engineered crops or didn't know the word glyphosate. Um, but learned about it. Of course, it was my beat. It was my job. Learned about it. Spent a lot of time with farmers and weed scientists and regulatory, you know, folk and and a lot of time in Monsanto headquarters and really just learned the business up and down and inside and out. And um, yeah, so, you know, when Monsanto started getting really upset when I was writing about scientific studies that showed, oh, weed resistance and super weeds were probably going to develop. And, you know, um, our GMO crops really feeding the world and what is the yield and how does that really compare to, you know, non GMO crops and, uh, and where are all these great other traits you said you were going to develop? And oh, by the way, this looks like glyphosate could cause cancer, according to all of these new research papers that are coming out. The more I started writing those stories, the more angry Monsanto got. They tried to interfere at Reuters. They tried to get me removed from my beat. They harassed me, my editors. Um, when I left Reuters, they went after my first book, Whitewash, pretty hard. We got some internal documents um, showing you know, a really in-depth strategy, a whole spreadsheet with a lot of different line items about how to attack the book and attack me and try to discredit me and create like a website, you know, and manipulate Google search engines so that if people typed in my name and glyphosate, they'd get directed to this website Monsanto wanted them to see, get third-party book reviews written, you know, destroying my my book. I mean, it was a really in-depth thing. So long answer again. Um, yeah. I mean, it used to be really stressful. There was a period of time when I felt really threatened and I was fearful to a degree um, for a little bit. And I don't know why I got over it. I guess I just did, but <laughs> now it just seems like it's kind of, you know, it's the nature of the beast is if this is the work you do, then that's, you got to expect that. And um, it's sort of a badge of honor, I guess, you know, if they think that my work is important enough and noteworthy enough that they want to come after me. I mean, that's all right, I guess. Right. You know, they, they cut their teeth on me first. <laughs> they, they created, um, academics review in my honor. And then they, that website attacked you. Um, they did third party, uh, all that stuff they did on, on seeds of deception and genetic roulette. So, um, I know, I know what you, are, went through when you published. And um, what's interesting is I didn't have any fear about going after Monsanto. It felt like this is the calling of what I'm supposed to do. And when I stepped up there, it was no problem. But, but I had some stress. It was interesting. I had put together the, the book, Genetic Roulette, and I basically put together as much what I thought would be the world of health risks on GMOs, everything that was there. I was, I was working with 30 scientists around the world. They were reviewing everything I was writing before I put it out. But I was nervous that somehow they had a trove of documents and research that I wasn't aware of that somehow disproved what I was saying. And because I was really dedicated to being honest and true and transparent. And I was a little nervous that somehow I would be in a in a debate and they would come up with a whole stack of evidence 
that showed that what I had, what I and the scientists I worked with was wrong, but they didn't have it. They never did. They didn't have any science that was substantial to counter the, what the independent scientists knew to be true. So it was interesting, the, the ghost of, the, of my own fears were that somehow I wasn't going to be fully accurate. Go ahead. Yeah, I think it's important to say that um, so many journalists that, that I know, you know, Tom Philpott um, or um, a couple guys at the uh, uh, New York Times, Danny Hakeem and others, you know, these are high quality people who've done this work for a really long time and they have similarly been targeted. You can look at different front groups, AC, uh, ACSH, Genetic Literacy Project, you talked about Academics Review. Um, so it really is, it's not It's not just you and me, you know, it's sort of the, the playbook, um, it's the way that they do it. And it's just as you described, it's, there's usually, not, there's nothing to argue with the facts. They're not coming in and saying, this fact that you've reported is wrong and here's the documentation to prove that you're wrong. It's, it's more sort of name calling and um, innuendo. And there was a recent article uh, written about me by, was it, Gen I think it was Genetic Literacy Project. Mm -hmm. um, and it had just so many crazy things. And in one part, they misspelled my name, which was interesting, but <laughs> so many crazy things. And um, like one of them, and it was very specific. Like one was she met with the law, this law firm in Los Angeles six times um, to plot strategy and she acted as a, and they, and she had a financial relationship and they paid her to be a court reporter or to report the court proceedings for them, <laughs> you know, which is crazy. Like I didn't go to that law firm six times. I went one time when I was researching the book and I wanted to go and look at, you know, and so I could describe the office and the pictures on the wall and that sort of thing. So I've been there one time, no financial relationship, court reporting, no, like, you know, there are court reporters who report proceedings, no financial relationship. And when I wrote to the, the author of this, you know, so-called science, science guy who wrote this article for genetic literacy, and I said, this is all wrong. Like, you should issue a correction. This is, none of this is true. And he said, well, if you can prove it's not true, then I'll issue a correction. <laughs> <laughs> Well, like, in what world is that the way that, you know, you, you, I don't know, it's, it's upside down, but yeah, there's, there's no um, honor or, you know, fealty for the truth there. It's all, uh, it's all just innuendo and in an effort to try to, you know, to discredit and smear and sort of distract people from the truth. And, and it's really unfortunate, but um, you know, it, it's rampant out there. We're going to go into the dangers of Roundup in just a moment, but I want to ask Richard's question. Do you think it is time that people who work for corporations get banned from working for government positions? Probably. You know, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a public policy expert, right? And I think you do want, you do want experts. You do want smart people, right? I mean, I know, um, gosh, I can't say... I know a scientist who worked for many, many years at a very large chemical company, uh, and he now works for one of our regulatory agencies. And he is, 
incredibly devoted and aghast at what he sees as management failure inside this this regulatory agency. And because he knows both sides, he's able to do his job better and he knows what to look for. And um, so I think, you know, I, I, I don't know that you'd want to ban on that because you want people who are smart, who know, who know what's going on, who have the experience. Um, but yeah, you do have to have some checks and balances and you do have to have some barriers, right, to this revolving door where you have people who've been lobbying or working on behalf of the corporate interest immediately hop over to the regulatory agency and then start making that regulatory interest happen um, to the benefit of that company. So yeah, we need we need checks and balances for sure. Yeah, I just want to give a little the, the briefest story about bovine growth hormone, Monsanto's uh, cow drug genetically engineered. Um, the person who was in charge of policy at the FDA when that was approved was Monsanto's former attorney, who later became Monsanto's vice president. The person who was in charge of the approval process, Susan Sechin, she had worked at her getting her PhD for Monsanto as a contract scientist on RBGH. And Margaret Miller moved from doing research at Monsanto on bovine growth hormone and took a position at the FDA in charge of a department that reviewed her own research. So it was it was all basically um, Monsanto evaluating Monsanto. Yeah. Um, now, before we go into the health dangers, I'm going to just share a screen for a second. Um, here we go. We are going to go to So in order to, um, whoops, going the wrong direction. It went the wrong direction. <laughs> you might be worse at this than I am. Good That's now. not supposed to happen. <laughs> End of slideshow. Yeah. All right, we'll do it a different way. Um, so let me just open that page and then share it. Okay, so if you'd like to purchase the book, and I hope that you do to support, to support Carrie and her work, and this purchase place also supports me and my work and the Institute for Responsible Technology. If you go to seedsofdeception.com, you can purchase the book alone, but for $4.95 more, which is basically slightly below our cost, we've thrown in three DVDs about Monsanto. Um, the World According to Monsanto, which actually has two discs in it, Science Under Attack, and your milk on drugs just say no, which is about bovine growth hormone. And a lot of what I just described and a lot more is in your milk on your milk on drugs just say no. And so, in fact, it was we have sections of report by Fox TV uh, reporters who on bovine growth hormone, and they were stopped from publishing or from airing their four part news series. But I got their original and shared it in your milk on drugs, just say no. So if you go to seedsofdeception.com, you can get the Monsanto papers plus the three DVDs. And if you don't have a DVD player, get it anyway and give it to people who have it. Get them aware of this. And again, seedsofdeception.com, then you can get the, the bundle. And that supports Carrie, it supports me, it supports the Institute for Responsible Technology. And now that we are moving away from the book, <laughs> into the health dangers. And then we're going to talk about some other things, how to clean our bodies from GMOs and Roundup, how to choose healthy diets, etc. Is there anything else you want to say about your magnificent book, The Monsanto Papers? No, other than, you know, I dedicated the book to, to people with cancer, to people who have struggled with cancer, or perhaps lost somebody to cancer. And I 
feel really strongly about that. 40% of men and women in the U.S. now are expected to get cancer in their lifetimes. It's according to our National Cancer Institute. And, you know, pesticides, chemical exposure, other environmental contaminants are a very big cause of a lot of these cancers, including childhood cancers. The research is there. We know it is. And so that's, you know, my father died of cancer last year. I'm sure everybody out there, you know, knows someone, has somebody close to them. Um, who's experienced uh, the, the struggle of cancer. So, you know, that's who the book is dedicated to. And I hope people see it and understand it in, in that perspective as well. And I want to say that I love the fact that you wrote it in story format. And it's interesting, you went from the more texty type book to the more story book. I did the opposite. My first <laughs> book, Seeds of Deception, was all stories. And my second book was Genetic Roulette, which was more textbook-like. And, uh, and you just did it the other way. Yeah. <laughs> and it was interesting how we made our choices, but that's for another discussion unless someone asked me a question <laughs> about it. All right, so the, here's a question from Christos from New South Wales, Australia. The gut wall barrier is the guardian of our health. Reach of the gut wall barrier is the gateway to disease. What effects does Roundup have on this protective gut wall barrier? And then Deborah from the United States writes a similar question, but different. Is it true that glyphosate is designed to explode the gut of an insect, therefore over time is responsible for the epidemic of irritable bowel syndrome and other gut issues? Asking because I've been experiencing gut issues for five years now and have given up wheat in an attempt to heal my gut. So there's two different questions about gut. Yes, and I, I'm trying to see if I could share my screen to show this study. There have been so many. So um, there have been, and I've been writing about them, and other people have too, there have been a lot of studies come out recently looking at the impact of glyphosate uh, exposure on the gut, you know, the microbiome and the, the healthy bacteria that live in the human gut. Um, you know, for a really long time, it was propagated Monsanto always said you can't glyphosate can't really be harmful because it doesn't um, the the uh, mode of action in the plant you know that doesn't exist the shikimate pathway doesn't exist in in humans in pets or people um, but it's been acknowledged and understood that it, it does in the bacteria that's in our gut and of course that's very important for our immune system and uh, just a whole array of, of health issues. So uh, there have been studies. Should I try to show my screen or is that too crazy? If you could do it quickly, but while you're doing it, I'll share. So while you're figuring it out, I'll I'm doing it right now. I'm going to beat you. You see did. <laughs> you did. did. Yes, you did. <laughs> so you see this one here. Um, this is just from January. Um, but so there are a lot of these things and you can look at these, um, but they are finding here. I'll stop sharing because that was supposed to be really quick um, there. Did I stop? I did. Yes, you did. OK, uh, they're finding that that, yes, it does look like this. And again, I'm not you know, I'm somebody who I, I'm not a scientist. I read a lot of scientific studies. Um, so I'm attributing this to different scientists. Uh, I don't know that the science is completely 100% established yet. Maybe some people would say it would, um, but they are showing a lot of markers for impacts on, on the gut bacteria, which could be disruptive to human health. And, <clears throat> and wheat, as you know, um, a lot of people have been really concerned about wheat because even though it's not genetically engineered, 
it has been um, targeted, it has been a crop that uh, is popularly desiccated with glyphosate by farmers. Monsanto has a glossy black brochure that they, you know, shared with farmers and others um, to use glyphosate to encourage them shortly before wheat harvest in cooler uh, areas, maybe cooler or wetter wheat growing areas, a lot of spring wheat areas. And, um, and so what is, is the result of that is that you have the weed killer residues often found in the finished products at higher levels than they would otherwise. And I, in, I have a story in, in whitewash, this, you know, academic, this professor uh, who was looking at, um, you know, flower samples and he was stunned. I remember he reported this to a wheat committee. He was stunned to find that all of his flower samples had glyphosate in them. And he just, you know, was floored by that, but it is a real concern. There are a number of uh, millers and other distribution companies that are starting to tell farmers don't do this anymore. You know, consumers don't want it. We don't want to buy the grain from you if you're going to desiccate. Um, but it is, is still an issue and still a concern, obviously. I'm going to share the screen that you sent me, um, which is uh, a, a, a graph, as you can see on the screen, showing the use of glyphosate-based herbicides on different crops or crop categories. And the bottom is corn, then the green is soy, the yellow is corn, the green is soy, then it's going up from the bottom, wheat, cotton, vegetables and fruit, rice, orchards and grapes, alfalfa, pasture and hay, and other crops. So you have also pointed out that there are there is evidence that a lot of crops here, there's 70 different crops that show how often or what percentage of the crop is generally treated with Roundup-based or glyphosate-based herbicides. And some of them are rather amazing. Almonds, an average of 85%, 95% maximum. And then figs, 85 to 100%, things we wouldn't necessarily know about. Now, if you go to responsibletechnology.org, there's a pop-up that says, yes, sign me up for action alerts and news. You can see it in the bottom of your screen. If you enter your name and your email address and your zip code, which is important so we can send you local information, you can get a report, which is the glyphosate database. All the different studies that have been testing the raw ingredients of food and the finished products by brand name, whatever has been tested that shows glyphosate levels, we have it there in a searchable database. You can do it by all sorts. You can pick your, your choice and find it there. Um, so that way we can help you shop and also go out to restaurants and find things. If it's not organic, what can you do to avoid things like the oats, which is such a high level of, of glyphosate uh, residues because it's sprayed just before harvest. So I'm going to respond also to the question that was asked about is is glyphosate designed to explode the gut of an insect the um deborah you're mix mixing two gmos together and in fact monsanto mixes two gmos together in the same crop the bt toxin is a comes from bt bacillus thuringiensis soil bacteria and it if you just take the spores and bacteria and you spray it and it gets into caterpillar's guts, it'll poke little holes in the guts of the caterpillar and it'll kill the caterpillar. And they take the, the gene from that bacterium and they put it into corn and soy and cotton. 
and now you have BT crops. And so if the, if the caterpillar eats those BT crops, it'll poke holes in the guts of that caterpillar and die. Um, and it's been found that in high concentrations in, in laboratory, it pokes the same holes in human cells. Um, now, as far as the gut wall or the gut bacteria, I know that I've interviewed Zach Bush, who has taken laboratory videos of human cells, and you can see the tight junctions between the cells. He puts a little glyphosate in the Petri dish and the cells separate. The tight junctions are lost and it becomes gaps between the cells. Now that's a certain type of leaky gut in cell between the cells. The BT toxin pokes holes, and if it pokes holes in human cells in real world conditions, that's a different type of leaky gut inside the cells. The two of them are called leaky gut, and that is linked to virtually all diseases, if you believe the Harvard-trained um, uh, scientist, the faculty member there who wrote a paper, all diseases begin in the leaky gut. Um, we have a lot of information at responsibletechnology.org about GMOs and digestive disorders, and also many other types of diseases. Uh, Christos from Australia asks what the evidence to link the rise in autism with Roundup. There is evidence that points to a link. It's, you can find it at responsibletechnology.org. Uh, Paula from the US said, I had a migrant worker client. She was a nutritionist whose job for many years was to plant a stub of sugarcane in a hole her supervisor wearing a hazmat suit had just sprayed with Roundup. She was not even asked to wear masks and gloves and came in with derma, dermatomycetitis, post hysterectomy due to ovarian cancer and elevated liver enzymes. I'm pretty sure this was all due to glyphosate exposure. We have a lot of evidence linking a lot of things to glyphosate. I can't answer that for Paula directly as to whether it specifically was related, but we now have tens of thousands of physicians prescribing organic diets because of the dangers of both GMOs and Roundup. And they report astounding recoveries. And as someone asked the question, um, Josephine from Facebook, at an individual level, it's even difficult to convince people that Roundup is a problem. Is there a simple strategy for what's a good thing to say that's convincing? People prefer to spray a poison than dig a weed in the backyard. So for Josephine and others, and I'll give that over to you to answer also, Carrie, um, Amy Hart and I created a film called Secret Ingredients. And we describe the de in detail the health dangers of GMOs and Roundup. But what is most convincing, even beyond the illustrations of what happens in the body, is what happens to the people in who are featured in the film who switch to organic diets and get better. Autistic kids no longer on the spectrum, infertile couples having babies, you know, digestive disorders, all, uh, brain fog, skin conditions, all these things clearing up. And then these doctors say, yeah, yeah, this happens all the time in our offices when our patients switch to organic. And here's why. So, Carrie, do you have a a something that people can say, and that's at Seeds of Deception. You can go to seeds of, uh, seeds of deception, uh, dot com. You can buy the movie or rent the movie uh, Secret Ingredients. Go ahead. So what I would say probably isn't super easy <laughs> to just roll out there, but the thing that, that um, resonates with me, I mean, I'm somebody who used to use Roundup in my yard, you know, and today actually when I was walking my dog down the sidewalk and I looked and I saw, oh, there's some dandelions in my yard. And I thought, I, you know, in the old days, I probably would have grabbed some Roundup and, and hit that with it. Um, but if you, if you look at the internal Monsanto documents, you look at their marketing reports, you look at their scientific reports, 
you see a really long history of the company scientists discussing dermal absorption, discussing how quickly and easily this can get absorbed into human skin, discussing with other employees inside Monsanto, telling them, if you're going to spray this, be sure you're wearing gloves and long pants and shoes and, you know, protective gear and washer wash immediately afterwards. And you're not supposed to bring your clothes into the house and like all of this stuff. And you can see these documents with EPA too. And you could see this discussion with EPA about how much of this warning do we need to put on the label? Because we really don't want to put a lot of that on the label because then people will be afraid to use it. There's a lot of discussion about should we say danger or warning or caution? Um, there's, a, there's documents I've been looking at again recently about how important it is to wear chemical resistant gloves and what a big difference that can make in the absorption of the chemical into your body. Um, but they don't advertise it that way, right? They advertise people in flip-flops and shorts and spraying it, and no, no gloves or protective gear, anything like that. So I guess what I would say is, if you're gonna use it, use it with respect and use it with gloves and clothes and don't let it get onto your legs and your skin and don't let it blow where your kids are gonna roll around on the grass and your dog. I mean, this is this is a chemical that is designed to kill living, you know, living plants, right? And it has an impact on the human body. And despite what the the company that sells it might say, that's the truth. And um, so, I mean, if that makes a difference to people, then, then, you know, but it makes a difference to me, right? Uh, something that I know that I need to wear a lot of protective gear and chemical resistant gloves and everything else. And I can't let my dogs or my kids get near that. I, you think about it differently. I think. I, wasn't it the, I think Brent was telling me they took a Tyvek suit and put Roundup on the top and it actually dripped through. <laughs> yeah. And so it's interesting, it's designed to penetrate. They have a, a surfactant that they add to it that drives it into the plants, but it drives it into the skin. Uh, so there's a, a scientist, Anthony Samsel, who has a organic garden and he would spray coyote urine around the garden to keep the deer away. But he also had a greenhouse and in order to kill the weeds near the greenhouse, he would spray Roundup. When he ran out of coyote urine, he decided to use his own urine to see if it would keep the coyotes away. But it, when he sprayed his own urine in the sprayer, it was killing plants. And he was like shocked. Why is my urine, he said, an herbicide. So he, he, he went into the, his, his study, he's a scientist, he went into his lab and confirmed that his urine was killing plants. When he stopped spraying Roundup, his urine no longer killed plants. So he thought it might be getting in through his boots into his skin, which is certainly plausible, but it could also be coming from the air. That's a interesting anecdotal uh, story, which is kind of shocking. It's kind of shocking and it's not something people think about. Well, people don't usually think about spraying their urine to keep the deer away. I'm not liking the visual of Anthony Samsel outside peeing in the grass like that. No, no, he, he, he peed into a Okay, uh, okay. Mason jar. And, anyway. That's a <laughs> anyway. mildly better, I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, it may not be what we want to. Anyway, carrying on. Um, <laughs> so um, there's a I mean, question. That yeah. does raise a good point, though, and you could, you know, I guess we don't have a slide tonight, but 
there have been studies looking at human urine um, blood serums, but human urine um, mainly and tracking glyphosate levels in human urine. There were some, uh, you know, University of California, San Diego uh, scientists who published, what was that, five years ago, maybe now three. Um, and they had been tracking a certain group of study subjects um, over a long period of time. And they showed both that the, um, the, the levels and the, the, um, the frequency, uh, not the frequency, what am I trying to say? The numbers of the levels of glyphosate uh, and the percentages uh, of glyphosate were, were going up and up and up over time in this, in this particular study group. Because as you said, and as I write about in Whitewash, it is, according to our Department of Interior and the data that they have gathered, ubiquitous. It's found in our uh, streams and rivers, surface waters. It's found, of course, in food, in the diet, uh, many foods. And it's, it's even found in rainfall uh, and some air samples because it is so widely used uh, in agriculture. Yeah, they, they, they looked at um, also blood level samples that had been held in, in uh you know, in storage for years and found increased levels of glyphosate in the blood over 15 years. Which, um, which of course, and, and this is something I guess we haven't even said, but we, we should. It, glyphosate is the poster child for the bigger problem. We're not only exposed to glyphosate. You know, we are focused on glyphosate. We're talking about glyphosate right now, but there are 212 other pesticides that, or 211 other pesticides that our Food and Drug Administration reports in our food in their most recent uh, monitoring report where they analyzed thousands of food samples for pesticide residues. And in the most recent data that they have published, uh, 212 different pesticides found in our food. And glyphosate is not the most prevalent. I think it was the 20th most prevalent perhaps, but uh, a number of insecticides, chlorpyrifos was right at the top uh, and another of other insecticides, fungicides, weed killers. So, you know, the dangers that we talk about with glyphosate, I think people need to keep in mind that this is representative of an array of chemicals and pesticides that are in our food, in our water, that science has shown us in many respects are very harmful uh, to our human health, to reproductive health, uh, to the health of our brain, neurodevelopmental issues. Um, so, you know, we, we talk about Monsanto and glyphosate. Glyphosate's the most widely used weed killer in the world. Monsanto is, you know, has been obviously a very big name and, and uh, you know, regulatory issues and lobbying and lawmakers and um, sort of leading the chemical industry propaganda machine around the world. But, you know, you make glyphosate go away and you haven't solved the problem. And we have some questions about that, but you did talk about all these things on food. So let's talk about for a moment how to avoid the chemicals on the food. So one way people might think is to eat products that are say non-GMO, but non-GMO doesn't test for the chemicals. So even the non-GMO project verified label, which I strongly endorse as a system to that does in fact test to see if there's at risk ingredients to make sure the contamination is below an, uh, what they consider the action threshold. It's very good as a third party verification, but if you, but really the label to look for is organic because organic does not allow the use of Roundup, 
for nearly all of these 212 pesticides, maybe all of those 212. Um, they allow for some organic ones that are generally safe and certainly wash off. Um, so organic does not allow the use of those chemicals or GMOs. Now, if you see organic and non-GMO project verified on the same label, that's actually a little better and here's why. Organic does not require testing for contamination of GMOs, the non-GMO project does. So if there's at-risk ingredients like soy or corn in the ingredients, then they will have tested to see that it's below their action threshold of 0.9%. Whereas if it's just organic, then it's not allowed to be used, but there may be contamination, and there sometimes is, and it might be higher than the action threshold. So the two together is the gold standard, but if you had to choose between one or the other, organic is better. Okay, so the next question, oh, this is an interesting question from Sarah. So if they are feeding the masses this garbage food, are they eating the same stuff or are they eating something different like real food? I have a very interesting answer to this question, Carrie, but I'm going to throw it to you first. Well, I don't know what they eat. I mean, I've had lunch and dinner and snacks with people from Monsanto and been inside their headquarters in their lunchroom and, and had beautiful salads uh, and sandwiches. But, you know, who would know? <laughs> well, I, I knew someone that went out to dinner with Bill Gates and he ate organic. And But here's the <laughs> thing. Here's the thing that's interesting. Um, in 1999, I think it was, there was a colleague working in uh, as an activist in the UK and sent out questions to different restaurants asking if they were using GMO soy and corn. And he sent one of these letters to the person who was managing the restaurant that was inside Monsanto's headquarters. And the, he, the person said, uh, well, we've tried to reduce, eliminate as much GMO soy and corn uh, as we can based on the concern of our customers, which is, of course, inside Monsanto. Then another person said that her, I think it was her son or someone that she knew very well, was a consultant for Monsanto in the UK. And there was a whole bunch of them going somewhere else and they were going to have lunch. And uh, he joked and said, well, they may serve us GMOs. And the guy didn't know he was joking, said, oh, no, no, we, we take precautions in terms of what we eat. Then um, finally, uh, I talked to a former Monsanto scientist, and he said uh, two things. First of all, he said that they were, he found there was research showing that when rats were fed GM corn, it damaged the rats. And so instead of withdrawing the corn, they rewrote the study to hide the effects of the corn. And he became concerned about the people in Southern Africa that eat far more corn than the rats were eating and could be because it's a staple food and we're concerned about the dangers. But he also told me that three of his colleagues at Monsanto were testing the milk from cows treated with genetically engineered bovine growth hormone. And they found so much of the cancer promoting IGF-1 hormone in the milk that the three Monsanto scientists refused to drink milk thereafter unless it was organic and one bought his own cow. So it's interesting that these three scientists work for Monsanto, continue to work for Monsanto, and yet they would not partake of the product that Monsanto was creating for the rest of the population. I thought that was a fun story to share. Um, and I'll just answer the, another question to people. Jenna, do you have any good ways to detox glyphosate from the body? Uh, and George, uh, what can be done to reverse the damage from glyphosate? So 
at livehealthybewell.com. You may have to just remember that, write it down. We have a, uh, a, a course called Healing from GMOs and Roundup, where I interview some absolutely top doctors and scientists about what people can do to detox. So it's just been posted in the in the Zoom chat, and maybe our team can also post it in the comments in the various social media channels, livehealthybewell.com. If you go to uh, Healing from GMOs and Roundup, there's 18 experts that each weigh in on their their technique, you know, whether it's Mercola or Dietrich Klinghardt or Zach Bush or Kieran Krishnan or whatnot, on their methods for reversing the damage. Okay, um, so is Roundup the only product that contains glyphosate, asks Doris from the United States, and if not, what are they? No, definitely not. Um, so Monsanto patented glyphosate in 1974. It's the active ingredient, right, in a lot of herbicides. And the patent expired expired in the year 2000 in, in the United States. So there are a lot of generics. Um, and Monsanto used it in a lot of different products as well. Everybody knows Roundup, I think, because Roundup is the popular consumer, you know, choice for your lawn and garden. And then you had Roundup ready crops. Um, but there were also, what are the names of some of the other ones? Well, Ranger Pro. Ranger Pro, yeah. Another one, a Quick Pro. Um, it's another one used by commercial applicators. I had a list written down. I anticipated this. What is it? Touchdown farm worker, cornerstone, uh, clear cut. I mean, there's, I don't even know, you know, hundreds of different um, products now that contain glyphosate as an active ingredient in them. So Bayer Monsanto announced that they are going to make a change in the consumer market. Can you catch us up on that? Oh, yeah. So this was just recently as well. So Bayer has you know, been really unsuccessful in trying to put this litigation behind it. As I, we talked about earlier, 100,000 lawsuits right now. But what Bear is really afraid of is all the lawsuits to come, right? I mean, they've been losing trials. Uh, they're, they've been trying to settle the cases, but there are a lot of people who don't want to settle. And even if they settle all of the existing cases, what about all the people who keep using Roundup you know, and keep getting non-Hodgkin lymphoma and keep suing, you know, you could do this forever. Uh, and bear investors are very upset, very angry. Uh, the market cap has really taken a hit for bear and they need a resolution. So they have, you know, a multi-pronged strategy. One is to try to settle a bunch of these cases now, um, try to get the U.S. Supreme Court to find in their favor on an appeal. And they thought, let's take it off the consumer market in the U.S. because a lot of the plaintiffs in that you know that they're facing are, are consumer users, not farm workers. Although there are farmer plaintiffs certainly, um, but this is a way to try to head off um, some of the litigation. But by far, their biggest market and their biggest revenue draw is the ag market, and they have no intention, they say, of of trying to remove it from the agricultural market. And um, one person, Dawn from Missouri asks, if they do take it off the market, she's concerned that it'll be replaced with even more toxic chemicals. And Mike from Virginia raises a similar question and asks about Liberty Link, which is another, um, another, like just there's Roundup Ready, there's Liberty Link and yeah. herbicides, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, but there's also Dicamba and 2,4-D now. I mean, they're, they're, there's definitely a shift 
<clears throat> underway. Um, the New York Times just kind of wrote about this last week or so, but you know, it's it's not news. It's been underway for a decade or more. A shift underway because glyphosate, because of the science showing human health concerns, and because of a lot of science showing uh, environmental health problems, you know, connected to in species, particular species and pollinators, and uh, and weed resistance that we're seeing a lot of. And so farmers have been using, you know, more and more of other herbicides as well, dicamba and 2,4-D in combination with glyphosate. And we've seen the development of new genetically engineered crops that can tolerate these other weed killers. And so you're kind of on this, you know, freight train running, you know, adding more and more weed killers, trying to outrun mother nature and all of these problems. And, you know, it doesn't really look like industrial ag is going to win this one. Um, so what you're hearing from Bayer and from others is they are looking for alternatives and they're looking for what they call biopesticides and, um, new active ingredients that can address weed problems. So, you know, we don't really know what that's going to look like. I mean, the current strategy is let's pour more and more, uh, of these synthetic chemicals on our farm fields you know, and we're seeing residues in some of these chemicals going up and up in our food. Um, but I do think that the companies are seeing the writing on the wall and you've seen Bayer in particular, as well as others, investing some money in some more sustainable, if you will, agricultural practices and joint ventures and things, uh, you know, just like you're seeing a lot of a lot of big food companies buying up organic, you know, mom and pop organic companies. Um, are they trying to control the market? Are they, as I said, seeing the writing on the wall and and they know where we're headed? I mean, you know, I don't know. I don't know. If we I think it has yet to play out if this is how this is all going to shake out. But uh, but the industrial, you know, pesticide treadmill uh, cannot go on indefinitely because it just, you know, the, the environment can't handle it and human health can't handle it. I'm really glad that you're optimistic. We both have different um, sources of, of I didn't say I was optimistic. I don't know. <laughs> Has yet yeah. to play out. All right. Well, you, you indicate that there's a shift. Now, one of the one of the angles that they may go with is through genetic engineering uh, to try and find new ways to replace Roundup um, or ways to make a lot of changes. And right. um, Bayer has a joint venture in something called Join Bio, right. and there they produce um, prebiotic, probiotics for the soil, and they genetically engineer them. And in the Institute for Responsible Technology is starting a new global campaign called Protect Nature Now, uh, where we want to stop all outdoor release of genetically engineered microbes. Um, what can happen is if you release a microbe anywhere, it can go everywhere. We didn't need a pandemic to prove that. It can mutate. We all know that. It can replicate. We all know that. Most people don't realize it can swap genes with many, many other species within the microbial communities, and it could damage or collapse ecosystems. And so it really is an existential threat. To find out more, and I'll just mention this now in case you are interested, please go to um, protectnaturenow.com and watch the film, Don't Let the Gene Out of the Bottle. And then you can take action. Many people asked, uh, sent questions, and what can we do? What can consumers do? How can we lobby, etc.? Well, if you watch the 16-minute film, um, which uh, just won a Telly Award, 
and then you go to take action, once you enter your address, all of your elected officials populate. If you're in the US, Canada, Australia, UK, or EU, and in a single click, you can send them our educational assets. The ones that are loaded right now is to try and stop the gain of function research on potentially pandemic pathogens. That's the other demand of, of Protect Nature now. No outdoor release of GMO microbes, no indoor enhancement of potentially pandemic pathogens, which if they escaped could create new deadly pandemics. But when you go to that take action page, then you end up um, being able to send in a single click all your elected officials, you can tweet them, you can also um, send out a press release to your local um, uh, media in your area. And we've reached thousands, thousands through this platform. And now we have members of Congress interested in working with us to implement new laws. So this actually works. So this is an in thing you can do individually in two or three minutes. And in a single click, you can reach many, many people. And if you spend two, you can even customize and we prefer if you customize your message, but you don't have to. And we I'm going to go to DC and I'm going to meet with these people and we're going to have we are actually making more progress more quickly than I had expected. And it's as if the pandemic has created the receptor cells, open them for people to do something because now people understand that microbes can wreak havoc. And when you genetically engineer, you increase the likelihood of that happening either inside the body or outside. So please go to protectnaturenow.com and consider making a donation as well to support our efforts because we need to act quickly and around the world. All right, so some more questions. Um, are there any known ways to neutralize glyphosate in the environment? Do you have an answer to that? Because I actually have some information. I do not. So uh, some friends of mine are have a program that is not yet made public that uses biological methods to, to, to degrade the glyphosate. Um, and they also have commercialized an alternative to Roundup, and I'll be hoping to interview them soon. So make sure you're, you're subscribed at the Institute for Responsible Technology or Protect Nature now, either way. And make sure you're also like our Facebook page, because we're going to be, I interview Carrie for Facebook Live, I'll interview others. So many of your questions and also late breakers will be available then. Here's a question from uh, Instagram from Six Kids Deep. She probably has six kids, I'm guessing. Where do you see this book helping parents? I just want to know what we are feeding our kids. I want to get your book in the hands of moms, other moms. What do you recommend? Well, is she talking about my book? Yes, she is. I mean, honestly, if you're looking at for something that is educational that can give people facts and data and reports and scientific research and, you know, whitewash is it. I mean, everything is in whitewash and that's why it's been, I think, adopted by different university environmental health programs. It's part of their curriculum. Um, it's sort of become a Bible for a lot of different groups that are trying to educate their, you know, local leaders, city council or school districts or something about the harm um, of glyphosate, you can always just email me to Carrie at CarrieGillum.com. I mean, I'm, I try to be helpful in pointing people to, you know, where to find documents or different reports or how to navigate the EPA or, you know, things like that. Um, I, I can connect you to other people that are working on programs or projects uh, as well. So, 
but there's a lot packed in whitewash. I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm just trying to sell a book, but I mean, it really is, has become a useful resource, I think, for people trying to understand. There's a whole chapter, for instance, about food, about our diet and, you know, how it gets in the food and what the levels have been and the testing that's done or not done. And uh, so. And, and you can get whitewash at seedsofdeception.com along with the Monsanto papers. Um, so uh, we're going to be wrapping up in just a couple of minutes, and I want to give you some personal closing questions. Um, what is the message you most want to convey to the readers of the Monsanto papers? Uh, that that this stuff is, you know, real, right? I mean, that we talk about all of this, we talk about corporate corruption and regulatory capture and toxic chemicals and we're angry and we're outraged and we're upset and everything. I guess I wanted this to be, to bring it all down to, you know, one man, one family, because I feel like that's, that's the way we, we come to care, right. About issues that may seem too technical or too difficult or not relevant to us, but but it we it is relevant. We're all impacted by this stuff. Our health, our future, our kids' futures. Um, it comes down to that, you know, caring about our families, caring about ourselves and our kids. And so that's part of the message, a big message of of this book, the Monsanto Papers, is you know you see you see the impact uh, on this one human life, and you see him trying to fight back and and winning to a degree. And now. Maybe the last question, how did writing about this work change your life? And I'll add any lessons learned in this whole work that you've been doing. I've been watching you, you know, just blossom as, as, as a major force on the planet in this area. So how, how has it changed you? You know, I guess it's made me, I, I, I've come to be quite passionate, right, about human health and, and what we are leaving for our kids. And it does uh, worry me. I mean, sometimes the more you know, the, the more upset you become, right? It's, it's not a pretty picture. It's, it's not a feel-good story. Um, but I think that doing this work, trying to bring truthful information out there, so that people like yourself or others who are engaged in, you know, want to be engaged in political change or just making a change in their own household, at least they can have information um, that that isn't propaganda, that isn't about selling, you know, a chemical or or pushing an industrial ag concept. It's it's just about trying to understand what's best for our health and best for our kids. And I don't know if it's changed me. I guess it has. I didn't use it, you know, 1998, I thought agriculture was probably the most boring thing I could ever write about. And I <laughs> did not expect to be doing it 20 years, 20 some years later, but here I am. Carrie, thank you for your 20 years later. Thank you for <laughs> all of this more than 20 years later. Yeah. Um, I was, I, I remember meeting you and I was maybe Kansas city or something yeah. and we, had uh, lunch and you were asking me questions and you were not at the converted stage. You were like, you were just like, uh, I was this activist with stories and you were plugging in questioning. And I got a chance to watch as they started to, you know, go after you and all this. And you started learning more. 
it it's been exciting to see and now you have you hold a very important place in the world you've testified in in europe recently you've you're writing about things in fact truthfully because you write so well and so often i've written a lot less than i would have i used to be the <laughs> primary writer 20 15 years ago in a lot of these things and it's like oh carrie's doing it i don't have to go into that that's that's handled um and I and you said at one point, you know, about whitewash. Well, I don't want to be selling a book. I actually do want to sell a book. I want to sell your books. I want to say that, you know, having written a couple of books myself, it's a huge investment. Oh my god! Sometimes, sometimes authors who I know really well say, "Let me give you a book." I say, "No, I want to buy your book because yeah. I have been." in your situation you've invested months of time and you deserve my 35 or 30 dollars or whatever it is i want to i want to they were willing to give me the book and i wanted to pay for it because i want and i want to ask you listening if you want to support what carrie is doing please buy her book if you also want to support what we are doing at the institute for responsible technology then you can buy it at seeds of deception com a portion will go to IRT and I've bundled the most recent book the Monsanto papers with three DVDs about Monsanto and if you don't read and you don't watch DVDs that's still not an excuse because you have friends and you can <laughs> give it away so please buy them wrap them in gift wrap give them away hold them until Christmas give them to people who are skeptical give them to people who are believers but share this information. You see, we do our best by holding up and writing and writing and writing and writing and writing, and then we put it out, and that's it. We, everything at that point depends on everyone else to act to see if it actually makes a difference. So you now have met Carrie, you've got a sense of the book, even if you don't plan to read it, give it to a reader. <laughs> you gotta read it, you gotta read it. Deception.com. And I also recommend strongly reading it because it's a storybook. It's yeah. a storybook that keeps you engaged. That's true. That's all true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I got to right. say, Jeff, just I want to say writing a book, as you said, it sucks a lot out of you. It takes, you know, months, sometimes years of your life and time away from your family. And so it really does have to be a labor of love and a passion and something you feel that is really important, you know, to the world. So, and I do. So thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. Thank you, Carrie. And we're here to support you. And come on, do some Facebook Lives with us. So make sure everyone here is, if you're on Facebook, like uh, the Institute for Responsible Technology, you're going to hear some more updates with Carrie. And uh, if you wanted to share any uh, uh, expressions of gratitude towards Carrie, Carrie, could you please look at the Zoom chat for a moment? There may be some words there for you yeah. from people who want to appreciate what you've done. Thank you all. And uh, I'm going to put myself on mute and allow Carrie to enjoy the messages for her oh. before we wrap, just before we turn it down. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. I, I have been trying to type in a few responses to people. I really do appreciate it. And, uh, and uh, honestly, CarrieGillum.com is my website. You can email me, uh, reach out, story ideas, tips, if you need help trying to you know, look for something, um, documents or something like that. I'm, I'm happy to try to help. And someone contacted us from Kenya asking for help from them. So I'm just going to direct them to you directly since that's a more narrow question. Sure. Th thank you all for joining. 
I'll be signing off and we'll leave this on for just a, a minute or two in case you want to add something in the chat. Thank you for listening to Live Healthy, Be Well. Please subscribe to the podcast using whatever app you listen to podcasts with. Or go to livehealthybewell.com to subscribe. This podcast will inform you about health dangers, corporate and government corruption, and ways we can protect ourselves, our families, and our planet. I interview scientists, experts, authors, whistleblowers, and many people who have not shared their information with the world until now. Please share the podcast with your friends. It will enlighten and may even save lives. Safe eating.